This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Pub after the day one meeting, that's sort of how we sort of talked about how this should go, that this should be like our faculty getting together after the first day of the meeting at the pub. We got our beers, wines, and actually it's like bottle, water bottles and stuff like that. Uh, that's the best we can come up with on short notice. But we want to give you what we thought was uh, some of the highlights of the day. Uh, and let's start with the faculty. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Mike. I'm Mike Putman from Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin. Trish. I'm Dr. Trish Harkins from Dublin, Ireland. Rachel. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida. And Eric. Hi, Eric Dian from New Jersey. Okay, so ground rules are there are no ground rules. Uh, we're going to sort of go around the horn and, you know, what what you, did you think was uh, uh, important? And so um, let's start with, who did I say I was going to start with? Uh, Eric, there you go. Yes, uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit. I, I spent um, a bunch of time trying to find all the posters, which are all virtual this year. So um, I'm going to talk about a couple posters today. The first is abstract. 0344. Uh, and this is looking at hydroxychloroquine uh, blood levels and, and different predictors for, um, for measuring those. And so I, I think hydroxychloroquine blood levels can be really useful in clinical practice, but I don't always know what are the things that, that drive it up or down. And so this one did a really good job of uh, all sorts of data uh, that you can use as a reference. And one, one thing before I say that is it, it really does make a difference in clinical care. So if you go above 750 nanograms per, per milliliter um, or then above 1,000, each time you go up, you have a 75% decrease in flare risk, according to their study. Uh, what are some of the, the things that affect it? If you're CKD stage two or above, you have 150 um, nanograms per milliliter uh, higher than if you're on the same dose of CKD one or less. Um, the the increase from 200 of, uh, milligrams of, of hydroxychloroquine per day up to uh, 400 brings you up almost 500. Uh, and if you increase your body weight by 15 grams, it decreases um, the hydroxychloroquine levels by 82 uh, for each increase of, of 15 kilograms. So uh, using all of these things, uh, when we're seeing the patients, we're thinking about their body size, we're thinking about um, their kidney function, uh, but it's always hard to know exactly how much does that affect what their dose is. And as we're trying to get them for that optimal level, which I generally go from between 1000 to 1500. Uh, so I, I think this is very useful for clinical practice in, in helping have that in the back of your mind. What was the cohort? I mean, how, that was that they were analyzing. They, how, they just analyzed people prospectively as far as their, their levels? Yeah, so it was um, in, a, in a lupus center uh, and they were checking blood levels on all the patients. Uh, and I'd have to take a look back to see if it, if it was prospective or if it was just a retrospective review of their data, okay. uh, but looking at the patient characteristics with the with the corresponding levels. I can remember almost 10 years ago, Michelle Petrie presenting this data at ULAR, I think it was in Spain, uh, and it seemed like just a, a little bit of a tool to tell whether patients were being compliant or not, and it's turned into a whole lot more than that, including oh efficacy, including antithrombotic effects and and whatnot. Any other uh, views on this? Do any of you do this in your practice? I, no, I have, oh yeah. no, go, Mike. I have strong views on this, and I don't do it. I, 
I, I'm, I'm skeptical because I think that a couple things can happen that I don't want. The first is that you go down on the hydroxychloroquine dose. And I really think that we're inappropriately reducing hydroxychloroquine doses for our patients with lupus. And then the second is that you have an uncomfortable, perhaps off-putting conversation with someone about how they're not adherent. And I'm in it for the long game. And any conversation that results in a patient not wanting to come back to see me, I think is a net negative. So I think it could be used well. I think it's probably effective, but I think there's some pitfalls here we need to be careful with. Yeah, Rachel, what do you think? I mean, I, I kind of agree with Mike, but I also think it opens it up for discussion for a patient, right? If you do have a patient who is not taking their drug, this is a way to kind of validate that in the sense of saying, look, I get it. Sometimes it's hard to stay on a medication um, for numerous reasons, but this is also why it's important. That's kind of the flip side of the coin, as Mike said. Yeah. Or even for them to open up as to why they're not taking the medication. And if you could do something about it, it might even just open up that conversation. Yeah, absolutely, Rachel. Well, we we need a, do need a way to deal with the horrendous problem of non-adherence to hydroxychloroquine, especially in lupus. And this is but one tool. And I think that Michelle would say um, you're more likely to go up on drug dosing. And I think she sides with you, Mike, and that we tend to underdose because of all the eye concerns and whatnot, hydroxychloroquine. I think you tend to increase your dosing here uh, and not necessarily with the belief that it's all non-adherence. I just think that finding the optimal dose, but it clearly needs to be studied better and used more widely until we really know. Eric, do you do it in your practice? I, I do it uh, often. I do it for pretty much all my patients on it. And I think it opens up a conversation uh, and, and I kind of work into the adherence talk. I say it's because of all these other things that I can mention here, your kidney disease, your, your body weight, and I want to make sure you're on the right dose. And then I come back and say, as a byproduct, while I was doing that, it also shows that your level was low and we need to have a conversation about how, how you're taking it. Yeah, the good um, news is think, it's commercially available, I think, in a lot of places now. So, it, you know, we need a little more experience before we can really have a knockdown drag out about this, you know. So, Rachel, what's your next uh, big highlight for the day? Ah, uh, well, I told you I was going to do something different, but I changed my mind. There are a lot of good stuff today, actually. So I'm actually going to talk to you about um, abstract 374, which is a BASDI index during pregnancy, to make this short enough for everybody this was a study group of 50 patients who had AS compared to um, age-related norm, normal patients of healthy pregnancies. At It's a small study, but what they did, they actually did BASDI on each of these patients um, in the first trimester, second trimester, and third trimester. And actually what they found is kind of interesting. So only morning stiffness actually classified patients who have AS with disease activity that was of any value in terms of the area under the curve during pregnancy. They found the back pain, fatigue, especially in the second half of pregnancy. And then of course the BASDI itself in the third trimester completely were insufficient for monitoring our AS patients. And why I think this is really interesting is because it opens up this conversation that we've been talking about for the past few years, which is does the BASDI, you know, these validated measures that we have from the 1990s that were originally historically um, used in, in a, a Caucasian male population, do they actually affect change and do they actually tell us about disease activity in women? And I think it's an interesting, um, an interesting dynamic to actually look at it during pregnancy as well when patients are having some of these symptoms regardless of their disease. So 
our team um, really thought this was interesting in terms of the AS group, but I, I find that it's an area of unmet need. And that's why I'm, I'm classifying it as my highlight for today. So is this important because you're a bit of a spa geek? And I mean, and, and the rest of us don't really do baz dyes. What do you think? I mean, considering I'm talking to like my vasculitis and lupus cohort right here, I think there's been an unmet need, right? I mean, psoriatic arthritis is psoriatic disease, AS, spondylitis. We have a lot of changes that have been gone going on within the past few years. Non-radiographic versus radiographic. What do these mean? And I just think it's an area that we personally like to study and that we want to be um, more knowledgeable about. So I think it's an educational deficit. You know, the, I, I can't say I do the best. I have in clinical trials. Um, what I have always been encouraged by, and I don't know if any of you do this, but the recent years have shown that spondylitis patients actually can be well followed with a rapid three. Yes. Which is certainly a lot simpler um, and maybe as revealing. And But I do think, I do think it's important to do this in spondylitis patients, something, and, and maybe even more so when they're pregnant, because then you I mean, you have to deal with spa activity versus, you know, what pregnancy brings to bear on the patient. Um, I think following patients closely in a quantitative and qualitative way makes a, a, for better care. Anybody else have any views on this? I, I thought that was a great uh, poster that I, I did a video on that as well. Um, I, I think it's um, very useful because I, I think there's a lot of um, you know, disparity in, in recognizing ankylosing spondylitis in, in women to begin with, and I think especially studying it during pregnancy. And regardless if you if you use the BASDI or not, I think the components are, are very helpful. Um, I, I have pregnant patients that come to mind right now that have, you know, there's all the mechanical changes. You have back pain, you feel fatigued when you're pregnant, and uh, really parsing out what are the questions within the BASDI to ask, I think is very useful for practice. Okay, great. Mike. What do you have? Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, an interesting study. This is abstract uh, 0352 uh, that was published or, um, from uh, Dr. Petrie's group. She's got her second shout out for this uh, hub session. Uh, and this is an interesting study. And I want to share it because for one, it's something I wish we did more of. We're, I'm, we're seeing a lot of these now, but it's a, it's a conglomeration of prior trials in, lupus, in, in using Benlista, Belimumab, the bliss inhibitor. Uh, it's called the effect of Belimumab on kidney outcomes in SLE, results of a large integrated analysis. And so what they did is they said, you know, we have a lot of trials that looked at Belimumab or Benlista, and they said, let's look at all that data together. We'll have more power, we might be able to find some new things we hadn't seen before, and we'll be able to parse it into some more interesting uh, patient groups. So, you know, there's differences between these trials. Some of them had lupus nephritis, some of them did not. Uh, there are some other subtle differences between the patients that, that came into it. But at the end of the day, you can say, you know, we have this large group of people who got this drug and, and what happened to them. And the thing that I thought was most striking, you know, it's not terribly surprising that people who had lupus nephritis at baseline got better because we already have read the Bliss lupus nephritis trial that showed that there were some improvements in GFR. Um, but what I thought was really interesting was that they looked at the people who didn't have lupus nephritis at baseline and they looked into worsening. Um, on uh, biolag scores and um, using the kidney function. And what they saw is that from week zero to week 52, uh, people who had normal um, uh, protein creatinine at baseline went up a little bit. 
if they're on standard therapy as opposed to uh, Benlista. And so to me, this suggests that uh, among people who uh, do not have lupus nephritis or lupus involvement at baseline, there may be some protective effect for, from belimumab. Now, the interesting thing is that had this been observational data, I would have said, well, of course, it's confounded by indication. Or, you know, this is just a subset of people who can are connected enough to get Benlista, but this is a randomized controlled trial. And so I think that it's a really interesting approach and kind of an interesting question. I thought it was a, it was a good abstract. So, Mike, you're a methodology guy, and um, and uh, do you think this is the best case scenario as far as post hoc analyses go? And you know, I, I think one of the strengths, but really one of the weaknesses, honestly, is that a good study happens, like the best study or the maximized study, and it comes out, and you, it's really great as it is. But the companies try to get more uh, more bang for its buck out of the study, and they just slice and dice it to the point that it can make almost any tune from that. And it be, the further away from the original trial and its design you get, the more meaningless the, the interpretation. So here you are, you know, taking multiple studies and putting them together and coming up with an outcome. Does this kind of analysis suffer from those faults or not? Uh, I mean, certainly, and I'll be the first to complain about it. I will also be the first to present two post hoc analyses on this little pub session that we're doing here. So I guess I'm uh, moderately hypocritical toward myself. I mean, I think the data is interesting and good in, in, in and of itself. I think that randomized data is better than observational data. Absolutely. If we have enough of it and if the patients are representative and if there's no shenanigans. And uh, anytime we can get a little more juice out of an RCT, I, I actually tend to like it. I think there's a risk in over-interpreting it. But man, the, the vitamin D study that we had, there have been a bunch of really interesting post hoc analyses that I think were really useful. And so uh, I'm, I'm pro additional analyses of randomized controlled trials, as long as you're not being too, too shady about it. Okay. I'm coming to you for shenanigans. <laughs> Patricia. Yeah, so I'm going to discuss uh, abstract 0478. Uh, so this was from Dr. Kirby and his colleagues. So they were looking for subclinical GCA in patients with PMR. Um, so it was quite a small study. They had 25 patients. And what they did was for all newly diagnosed PMR patients, they did a temporal artery ultrasound and an auxiliary artery ultrasound. And they found that 20% of patients, which was actually five patients, did have evidence of subclinical GCA. Um, and all five had evidence of GCA in their temporal arteries and one in their axillary artery. And I suppose the thing to note was that on their one year follow up, all five of them had actually developed clinical GCA. Um, so I suppose this abstract, obviously, you know, we need a bigger study, et cetera, but I, it made me think. So I have two questions and I'd actually be very interested on the panel's um, opinions on these. So should we be screening all PMR patients for GCA, even if they don't have symptoms or signs of it? And number two, if we do find that they have subclinical GCA, should we be treating them as GCA or should we be treating them as PMR? Wow. I think they were the two things that I got from it anyway. Um, I'll open it up to you guys before I give my opinion on it, maybe. I'm going to turn the show off at this point and leave everybody hanging with those two great questions. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I want to, uh, I think Mike's our vasculitis maven on this show. And um, Mike, what I learned is that 50% uh, of uh, 
GCA patients have PMR symptoms and that if you did uh, temporary biopsies on all PMRs, maybe 15% would be positive. So this number that uh, Trish comes up with here based on ultrasound, 20% is kind of close to that. Do you think mm -hmm. this is true? Yeah, I think- We're gonna get to questions in a second, but well, do you think that yeah. the numbers are in fact true? I, I am sure that there is subclinical GCA among patients with PMR and we've all found them. You know, a couple of months later, it becomes clear. I am sure that we would have found some at baseline if we screened for it. And that gets to Trisha's questions, which are the are, are really are the best questions. Should we treat this? And in my opinion, is this gonna be over diagnosis? Because a lot of these people right now get 15 milligrams of steroid, they get tapered off and they do just fine. Putting them on 60 milligrams and some Actemra biologic and um, doing all this aggressive workup may be to the detriment to some group of these patients. We just don't know. It's a very good question. Yeah. All right. So the two questions again were, should we treat them? And the first one was Trish, what? So should we be screening all our PMR patients? Like if they don't have signs, if they don't have symptoms of GCA, should we be screening them? Yeah, I don't like going looking for trouble. I don't like trolling for p-values. I don't like, so um, no, I I think that you, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I need to know the answer to the question before I ask the question. Otherwise, it, you don't know what you're going to get. And you might get results that you, like Mike suggested, you potentially could be over-treating here. Um, I, in spite of the fact, I, I, like Mike said, I, I do see people who have evolved into GCA it's not 20%. It's in, in my practice, but then again, I'm not, I'm not looking for it. So uh, if I was doing as Trish says, and I looked harder, would I convince myself? And then would I treat them? Uh, Eric and Rachel, what do you do? I mean, I'm pro ultrasound. So from an esoteric standpoint, I want to be looking further screening these patients, but I don't know that I treat a patient if it's not clinically active disease period across the board. So I, I don't know that this changes the way I deal with this in clinic. Eric, what do you do? I, I educate them on the symptoms of GCA. I remind them every single time I, I see them and I, I harp on that. Um, I have a, a patient right now I'm treating with very refractory PMR that is very difficult to treat. Inflammatory markers are much higher than I would expect. And, and for that patient, I'm, I'm looking for GCA, but for the typical patient, um, I tell them the warning signs and we go over it and, and we go clinically. So Trish, what, what has this study told you or taught you that you may do different going forward? I'm actually opposite to you guys. I'm like pay, playing the devil's advocate. But I suppose for me, like Rachel, like to do a temporal artery ultrasound or an auxiliary artery ultrasound in experienced hands takes five, 10 minutes tops. Um, and I do think like, I know this is a small study, but all five developed clinical GCA. So say if this is six months down the road, they're six months into their PMR therapy. And now suddenly we're going back to square one, we're treating them for GCA. Like, are we over-treating then? Or not over-treating, but like their cumulative steroid dose is going to increase. And God forbid they present with the complication of visual loss and we've known, but then that's back to, I'm screening them to find it out. Um, but I definitely think the screening part, I think, you know, five, 10 minutes in clinic, um, we can easily do it. Okay. All right. So, so my quick, kind of with me. <laughs> my, uh, abstract is, uh, abstract zero five, three, three. This is, this is a spit study. 
um, sputum antibodies against CCP in patients at risk for developing RA. So clinically uh, uh, suspect arthralgias, at-risk individuals. This was a study of, 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 of patients who were um, at risk only by having CCP. They did not have, have to have, I think, even any symptoms here. And um, so this comes from uh, Mike Holler's group in Denver, uh, where they've done, uh, and, and Kevin Dean, they do a lot of work on uh, preclinical RA and at-risk individuals. Um, Mike, a number of years ago, did this interesting study of, I think it was first-degree relatives who were CCP positive, and they did um, alveolar lavage on them, and they found not only autoantibodies in at-risk individuals, but they also found evidence of inflammatory airway disease based on, I guess, BAL fluid and, and whatnot, suggesting even though they were totally asymptomatic, that that the preclinical state can also begin in the lung, not just um, serologically um, in, in the circulation. And so this is an extension of that study. And, uh, and, and it kind of goes to one of the theories or hypotheses that I think that that group is promoting that this preclinical RA is a mucosal um, uh, sort of driven process with microbiome changes and mucosal surfaces being the interface between um, uh, an inactive and then active immune system that um, leads to an autoimmune state that may progress. So the bottom line was that they found antibodies in in at-risk individuals, not just, and that that that's sort of what's interesting here. Does it change, you know, anything I'm doing? No. They correctly point out that the patients who are just CC positive, the odds are very much against them developing RA. Developing RA then becomes a cascade effect if you're a first degree relative, if you have tenosynovitis, if you have high titer CCP, if you have double positivity, if you're a smoker, and now if you have sputum spit antibodies, you know, uh, you're, you're, you, the clinician, gets to worry a little bit more. So I like the story that's being built that kind of sequentially adds on. Um, I still think we can now argue about some of the preclinical intervention trials at this meeting. Um, stop RA, a negative study with hydroxychloroquine, or the ARIA study, a positive study with abatacept, but that's another pub discussion. So in our last lightning round, we're going to go around once around the horn, and I'm going to get quickies from everyone because this is going on too long and we have to get our second round of, of beers here at the pub. So again, Eric, give us your quickie. Yes. So uh, very quick, uh, spy you not a university, it's uh, a study looking at uh, spinal arthritis and uveitis. Uh, what are the, they put together a calculator for, can you predict severity for the uveitis in this patient population? So things that are more severe, smoking, axial and peripheral involvement, uh, a high BASDI, HLA-B27 positivity, female sex, elevated CRP, and a history of bilateral ocular involvement. Um, we can get to um, Mike's thoughts tomorrow on, on they also included low vitamin D there as well. Cool. Rachel. So very quickly, abstract 89, which was looking at psoriatic arthritis trials and then expanded, but it showed that black study subjects remain underrepresented in rheumatology clinical trials with one exception in gout trials. So my urge to you guys is let's do better at patient recruitment. And also maybe we can better define disease states as it relates to other populations. Interesting. 
Mike. Mm -hmm. I will very briefly parse another trial. So this was the uh, abstract 0526 from the PEXAVAS trial, which was a factorial randomized trial of either steroids a little bit or a lot or plasma exchange, yes or no. And uh, the interpretation of the PEXAVAS trial was that it was a negative trial. You should do low-dose steroids and plasma exchange doesn't necessarily have a role in vasculitis. Now, the flip side is that if you read that trial, you'll notice that not that many people in the trial had diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, 27% um, overall, and only a fraction of that was severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. We have been clamoring for that data and now we have it. And the interpretation in today's abstract was that there was no significant difference. And they're correct. The hazard ratio was something like 0.4, Five, but it crossed 1.14 to 1.40. And so they said there's no significant benefit. But man, if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, there is a wide divergent between, divergence between those curves. And it really looks like the people who had severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage benefited from plasma exchange. The hazard ratio confidence intervals crossed one, but man, that hazard ratio is 0.4 something. I want that for my patients with severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, and I am coming off the anti-plex bandwagon, and I am bringing it back. And to be fair, I never really left, let it go because I've always been suspicious that we didn't know enough about that cohort. Uh, the the Pexiva study was a fairly large study, wasn't it? Like two hundred or something like that. Seven hundred four. Wow. Yeah. So I can't can't blame sample size on on um, significance there, but. I think any rheumatologist with a conscience who's dealing with vasculitis and alveolar hemorrhage is dialing up that that plasma exchange because bad outcomes there, right? So, I all right. I think any rheumatologist with a, a laser pointer, you can fit it between those Kaplan-Meier curves so you know that there could be a benefit there. <laughs> there you go. All right, Trish, you're going to cap the show. Yeah, so very, very briefly, abstract 0447. So they were looking at the use of beta blockers in reducing the risk of aortic dilatation in patients with GCA-related large vessel vasculitis. So it was basically a retrospective study. Um, they had 65 consecutive patients. Uh, 15 of those, so 23%, were on beta blockers, and the remaining 50 patients weren't. So what they did was they compared the patient's first imaging with their last imaging and looked for any evidence of new aortic dilatation. And what they found was 15 patients, so 23%, had evidence of new aortic dilatation. But the key thing was none of those patients were on beta blockers. So in other words, everyone who was on beta blockers in that study population didn't develop new aortic dilatation. And they'd also done vascular scores in these patients before. And it wasn't that the vascular score was higher in the patients that did develop aortic dilatation. So even though it's retrospective and it's small, I do think it's given us a little bit of food for thought. Maybe the addition of a beta blocker in addition to our conventional management to reduce the risk of aortic dilatation. So do we think that this effect is all driven by antihypertensive benefits? It's very hard. Yeah. Like I think it's, I suppose it just gives us food for thought, but absolutely it'll need to be studied prospectively, larger numbers, et cetera. But I just thought it was quite an interesting study. And I know it's something that we all worry about. And I suppose we're not too clear on how best to attenuate the complications of large vessel GCA. So uh, for that reason, it caught my attention. I'm still I'm wondering about this. Did they go into the study knowing that 
there's a question of whether or not to use beta blockers or did in doing the study and looking at who developed dilation of the aortic root did they then see this divergence of whether you use so did they find it sort of retrospectively by accident or did they go in looking to analyze uh, find this uh, answer this question yeah i'm actually not too sure enough but i would say it was retrospectively found would be my yeah. <laughs> um, interpretation of it um but yeah i still thought it was quite interesting though very very much so all right this is very informative great first day recap by a great faculty i want to ask everybody are you um what do you think of today was it uh, a great meeting uh give me your score of the meeting um, zero to 10. Zero is the worst meeting ever. 10 is the best. Best Again, we're all back and, and loving seeing each other. Lots of, of smiles and hugs. But how was your first day, Eric? Zero to 10. I'll go with the seven. It was, it's great to be back. It, it, I, I miss the poster halls. I think it'd be great to actually see the posters. And it's a little hard to rely on the internet. That's a little spotty sometimes. But seeing everyone definitely brings it way up. Rachel? I would have gone six. Uh, solid being back, but that unit is driving me nuts. Yeah, Patricia, you're you're doing virtual. What do you think? Yeah, so virtually brings me down to six. Yeah, I've I I'm so jealous of everyone who's over there. The virtual platform is great, but yeah, it doesn't replace being there. So ACR twenty three, I'll definitely be there. I want you to know, Mike Putnam was all over the convention center today, so he will know the final number, the final answer. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to give it a seven so we can split the difference. A nice 6.5 average. We're all correct. Um, I think it's a 10 for seeing colleagues and uh, being in person again. It's just a joy. Uh, it's like a four uh, as far as the tech stuff, the community hubs. I want to see people in person. It's kind of weird signing on to things. So I think that there's some tweaks they can do next year to make it better. Um, four and 10 also averages out to seven. So I nailed it. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of little things that were disappointing, but we haven't been together in a long time. And I don't know if you've traveled recently. The airlines are not getting a seven or a six, you know, um, they're struggling too. So return to normal is going to be a little bit of a slow path for all of us, but we're enjoying it. Thanks very much for your time tonight. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Hi, David Liu here, reporting for Room Now from ACR 2022. All we were talking about last year was oral surveillance and still the legacy keeps on going. I want to tell you something about something slightly related to oral surveillance and some of the data that's washed out from that. Because in oral surveillance, we did see a sub-study in that group of patients who did have some cardiovascular risk. We saw, some, uh, we saw in TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors some infection data. And we saw that JAK inhibitors did seem to carry an increased risk for a number of different types of infection. Now, what about East Asian patients? Because we know that they do have different infective risks and they do make up a decent proportion of our patients, but we don't always have the data to inform our decisions in that subpopulation. What we've seen at this meeting, and that's the beauty of ACR, you get data from all around the world, South Korean national insurance data looking at TNF inhibitors versus JAK inhibitors as far as zoster risk is concerned, general bacterial infection, and then opportunistic infections. And what we saw was that general bacterial infections were equal between TNF inhibitors and JAK inhibitors. We saw an outsized risk, as you might imagine, of zoster in this population with JAK inhibitors over TNF inhibitors. Even with this enriched population, we saw a 2.3 times greater risk of zoster infection 
in JAK inhibitor treated patients versus TNF inhibitor patients. Um, although we did see slightly more opportunistic infections with TNF inhibitor treated patients versus JAK inhibitor patients. The point I'll make though is that it's a lot more common to get zoster, serious zoster in fact, in this population compared to opportunistic infections. So plenty to consider as we go about trying to still uh, piece um, apart the real data from our surveillance in real decisions that we have to make in clinic. For plenty more on rheumatoid arthritis, head on down to roomnow.com. Hi, this is Julian Segan from Melbourne, Australia. I'm reporting for Room Now at the ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022. Uh, this is day two and it's quite cold here. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about abstract number 0925. Uh, this is the impact of initiating biologic and targeted synthetic uh, uh, disease-modifying agents on pain medication use in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So we know that chronic analgesia use uh, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatic diseases is very common. Um, the complications of opioid use uh, and other analgesic use, for, for example, neuropathic agents, uh, are well established. Uh, this study used uh, insurance claims data from 2009 to 2020 uh, on more than 30,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis uh, who were initiating uh, their first biologic or second line uh, biologic or targeted synthetic disease modifying agents. Um, it looked at the trend of uh, medication use over time including opioids, anti-inflammatories as well as oral steroids over a one-year period. Uh, cancer was excluded in this cohort, uh, but they allowed for other comorbid conditions, including uh, patients who, who had osteoarthritis, which was 50% in this cohort, as well as 20% with fibromyalgia and 30% with peripheral neuropathy. Uh, so this study showed that there was a reduction in opioid use, uh, although this was actually quite small. So this was only up to 4% uh, in the population uh, from a baseline use of about 55 to 60%, which is actually quite high. Uh, the reduction was mainly re uh, driven uh, by reduced use of tramadol as well as hydrocodone. Um, we actually saw an increase in gabapentinoids over time, so this includes gabapentin and pregabalin. Um, the increase was quite small, only 1% from a baseline of 22%. And I wonder if this reflects uh, increasing use and increasing availability uh, in broader society, particularly with medications like pregabalin. There was also a small reduction in oral prednisolone use uh, with a mean reduction of uh, just two milligrams. Uh, so this study actually provides us quite a high level of data uh, with regards to medication trends over time. Uh, it has the usual limitations, uh, including uh, the limitations of using claims data. Uh, this study clearly reflects to us uh, that there is residual pain in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, as well as rheumatoid arthritis with comorbid osteoarthritis and fibromyalgia. Uh, pain remains quite difficult to manage and clearly we need new strategies including non-pharmacologic uh, management. Uh, we also have probably legacy from the opioid epidemic uh, with very high baseline use of opioid medication. Uh, so this is uh, Dr Julian Segan again uh, reporting from Room Now uh, from the ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Najma from Glasgow. I'm delighted to be here with you for the second day of ACR. And today there was a lot of discussion about pre-RA and the question really is, shall we treat or shall we not? And it was the topic of the great debate this morning and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about that. But also there are quite a few abstracts that's been presented um, yesterday and also today about, you know, 
therapeutic intervention in pre-RA, especially pharmacological interventions. So um, basically, the first abstract that was presented yesterday is um, abstract 530. It was looking specifically into giving data of ARIA. I think you probably heard of that trial. It's a randomized controlled trial of a Batacept in patients at risk of developing RA. These people had subclinical inflammation as defined by a positive MRI. Um, and what they've had presented already at Tula was what the, the, the in onset of clinical array was delayed and these were the data at 18 months and what, we show, what was shown was that actually this um, again is delayed um, at 18 months. So fairly positive um, trial. Um, and then we also had um, the um, two abstracts presented today, 1603, the treat earlier um, studies, it's a randomized controlled trial of metotrexate in pre-RA and it has been published in the Lancet. But basically the idea is if you give metotrexate to patients at risk, again these patients have subclinical inflammation confirmed on imaging. Um, you can, you are not delaying the onset of clinical RA. The patients that developed RA that had, that were on metotrexate, they had a, a milder disease, so to say, but yeah, it was not necessarily delayed. And the last one, which is abstract 1604, was um, stop RA. Stop RA with hydroxychloroquine in a patient at risk for RA. Again, population was a bit different this time because they not necessarily had any imaging um, showing subclinical inflammation. In fact, to be included, they just needed to have positive anti-CCP antibodies um, and no clinical inflammation. So the population was probably a bit more heterogeneous. However, the study, um, this randomized controlled trial was actually stopped, terminated early because um, interim analysis um, met the fertility criteria. So um, it seems that hydroxychloroquine is also not efficient. Um, so basically, what are we left with? A Abatacept delaying, conventional synthetic DMARDs not really preventing anything. And there was this old study of, uh, not old, but 2018 study of rituximab that was delaying um, this is onset for about a year. So at this stage, um, there are a few things to consider. Do we want to expose patients to the risk if the benefit is not necessarily um, you know, the greatest, especially as in we can't really prevent it? On top of it, the other consideration is, do we act at a stage that is already too late? Because people with at risk, you know, with anti-CCP and subclinical inflammation, they have already a highly disrupted immune system. So maybe we should target patients in a much earlier state. Um, hopefully, and uh, this is the direction that next uh, studies are going to take. Um, so that's that's was it for me today. Um, tune in on RebNow.com for more coverage, and um, see you around. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm on Twitter at Janet Burdope, and I'm tweeting the ACR hashtag ACR2022 or 22 in Philly, the Convergence meeting, and I'm here at Room Now, and I'm having a blast. I wanted to talk about the debate, and I'm, I have a conflict to tell you because I was in the great debate today, and the debate was asking the question, if a patient has pre-RA, symptomatic or not, should they be considered to be treated? And there's a lot going on at this meeting that tells us several things. The first thing is we don't have a standardized definition of pre-RA. The second thing is if you're ACPA positive only, 
16% um, or one in six will become RA over the next year and it goes down over time. The next thing to tell you is that if you have arthralgias in an RA kind of distribution and or ultrasound findings of erosion such as at the base of your toes, fifth MTPs, then you can actually develop rheumatoid arthritis far more quickly because you're further along on the stage. So what this whole debate tells me is that at this point in time we can't prevent RA. We might be able with some drugs in high-risk patients to slow down the progression and there will be an excellent uh, stop RA uh, study that will be presented at this meeting. The bottom line is hydroxychloroquine at this point in time did not delay high-risk patients of getting the onset of rheumatoid arthritis compared to placebo. Whereas the ARIA study has shown that abatacept for six months can delay the onset of RA even 12 months after stopping the drug, so 18 months data. So the word is out what we do with pre-RA for our patients in clinic. Enjoy the meeting. Thank you. I'm Dr. Katherine Sims reporting live from Philadelphia at ACR 22 and today we're going to be talking about reproductive health and women's rights. So there's an abstract, a late-breaking abstract, L09 by Dr. Kristen Whipler from Omaha, Nebraska and they surveyed women and got over 1,700 responses and women reported about 6% that they were having difficulties accessing methotrexate in the post-Roe era which was around mid-June that that Supreme Court decision was made. Now the issue is that women with rheumatoid arthritis, methotrexate is a first-line therapy. So if we're having issues accessing medications, those patients are at risk of having flares, worsening disease, and maybe even progression of disease. So rheumatologists really need to be in tune with patients about their issues with access to medications because we want to make sure that we stay on top of our patient's disease and that it does not become uncontrolled because they cannot access the appropriate medications. Now of that 6% of women who said they had difficulty accessing methotrexate, 63% experienced a delay in even filling the prescription itself. And they underwent excessive questioning by both pharmacists and doctors about their pregnancy status and if pregnancy was an option or a possibility. And so not only do these women have a lack of, or an obstacle to obtaining methotrexate, it's also very difficult for them to have some of this personal questioning by someone who's maybe not even their physician. So it's very important that the rheumatology world is uh, involved in these discussions that are happening on a national level. And we want to make sure that our patients get the access they need to the medications that are appropriate for their disease. Continue following me at Dr. Cassie Sims on Twitter for additional information and follow now at Room Now for additional information for ACR 22. I'm Jonathan Kay from University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School in Worcester and I'm here at ACR 2022 Convergence and I'm with Janet Pope from Western University Ontario That's right. and she just delivered a remarkable performance at the Great Debate. Why, thank you. <laughs> the Great Debate today was about whether to treat pre-rheumatoid arthritis. And Kevin Dean and Mike Holers from University of Colorado were pro, and uh, Hani El-Gabawi and Janet were the con. That's right. And you delivered a very convincing discussion about how a patient would respond to treatment. So we thought it'd be kind of fun as well as informative if we sort of thought from the patient perspective you have a positive test, you have some pain, we don't know if the pain was anything to do with the reason why the test is positive and we made it even that you had a family history of an aunt with RA. So we made it that it could be plausible that this person's at risk for RA but it was the thinking as well as what was said that I think was both entertaining and educational. I, so, I, I loved yes. it. You had the 
text of the conversation, but you also had uh, clouds with what each person was thinking, and it was brilliant. Well, we thought, too, that I think the debates traditionally, although it's important to have learning and science, I think it's expected that there is a little bit of humor that really illustrates the point. And I must say, Hanny thought that up, and I saw, I thought it was brilliant, too. And the science is there, and you both had the same science, uh, Kevin and Mike and you and Hanny. You agreed about the scientific background. The question was, can you determine pre-RA at a time before rheumatoid arthritis has started and truly prevent rheumatoid arthritis as opposed to treating rheumatoid arthritis very early on. Right, and I think the studies a lot are actually RA that doesn't meet criteria or arthralgias with sometimes even bony erosions by MRI or ultrasound. So wouldn't you think that they're RA as opposed to pre? That's the first thing. And the second thing is if we look at people at risk of diabetes, so we say pre-diabetes or IBD, but they don't meet criteria for Crohn's. I think a lot of chronic diseases that we could look to have the same idea. You've got something going on, you don't have a label, and we could over-treat, or if we knew we could treat and make things better, we'd probably all, and if it was a reasonable, well-tolerated, well-afforded treatment, we'd probably all jump on it. And that's where we're at right now in pre-RA. We really don't know there's a spectrum. Um, not everyone at risk obviously will ever get RA, and some people will. So the risk of overtreatment versus no treatment is there. But one of the problems with pre-RA, and there's now a diagnostic code for pre-RA, is that the approach to treating pre-RA is really using rheumatoid arthritis treatments to treat a completely different disease. And if you look at patients, about one in five or one in six of anti-CCP positive patients are going to develop rheumatoid arthritis, but do you treat them with an RA drug or, as Mike Holler suggested, perhaps a drug that's directed against the inflammation that's occurring in the lungs or in the gastrointestinal tract or in the teeth or the gums uh, to treat a completely different process. Right, right. So who knows? And I mean, it's not even in a way a disease the way RA is a spectrum of things. And at a cut point, it's like the day before, did you have RA or not? Well, obviously they did in a chronic disease. So I think there needs to be a lot of research. And I think that's what the debate actually brought out is we agree we need research and we need trials and we need to know the natural history of all those people who aren't going to get RA, who have positive ACPA and are arthralgia with it. And it came out that glycosylation of ACPA might be a more sensitive biomarker to predict who might really go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis. Absolutely, and also where it's coming from. There were some talks yesterday of um, sputum, IgA, ACPA, might be far more predictive. But the other thing is, once we have tests in the open marketplace, so to speak, you can get a lot of false positives. You can get true negatives, false negatives, but a lot of false positives. So I think we have to be aware that we wouldn't want people treated with drug X under diagnostic code Y that don't even have anything. And an important point that you brought up is related to the manpower issue or the person power issue that there aren't enough rheumatologists to deal with the 400 requests for new patient appointments now and if you have an increased number of asymptomatic individuals with positive tests we might not right now have the manpower to That's deal with right. that. right. And we don't know what to do with them anyway. And the way I would think about it when I talk to my trainees, um, an ACPA might become eventually the ANA, which is the thorn in our side, positive ANA, done for the wrong reason, is 100% irrelevant. So hopefully we won't get to that in RA or pre-RA. Right. Well, at least at this meeting, we're learning that hydroxychloroquine has no place uh, for the treatment of the 
pre-RA patient. And we're learning much more about this very important area, and I look forward to much more information about this at this and future meetings. And for more information about this and other topics, join us at Room Now uh, for further coverage of ACR Convergence 2022. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. I'm Jonathan Kay from UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts, here at ACR Convergence 2022, uh, reporting on a Abstract 1112 from the plenary session today. Hafsa Nabi from Copenhagen, Denmark, talked about switching biosimilar to biosimilar. Previous studies have looked at switching from reference product to biosimilar, but this is the first presentation about a switch between a biosimilar and another biosimilar. In this study, the DanBio registry was used uh, where 1,605 patients had data that had been entered uh, where patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyl arthritis who were on CTP-13, biosimilar infliximab, were switched to uh, GP-1111, uh, which is another biosimilar infliximab. They looked at those patients who were originator naive and those who were originator experienced and found that originator naive patients who were switched from biosimilar to biosimilar uh, had an 83% survival after one year on the biosimilar, whereas those who were originator experienced had a 92% survival on the biosimilar. Both of these were very good uh, retention rates, uh, but uh, the predictors of a lack of response would be higher disease activity, uh, not in DAS28 remission, higher CRP level, methotrexate use. So these are, these are uh, risk factors that would be expected to predict lack of response to any medication for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, in this study, uh, they didn't look at factors such as nocebo effect or other biosimilar specific factors that might account for loss of response. But this is important information to gain experience understanding what happens when you switch from one biosimilar to another biosimilar. I look forward to additional studies that look in greater depth at the reasons for loss of response to a biosimilar after switching from another biosimilar. But this is encouraging, indicating that biosimilar use in Scandinavia is successful, and in the United States, we should see similar outcomes uh, among our patients. Uh, for more information about this and other studies, come to Room Now, and I'm Jonathan Kay. Hope to see you again soon.